I never hesitate to accept the opportunity to come to this campus when you have so courteously extended it to me because I rejoice in the opportunity to be with your young people, whom I regard as the seed bearers of the kingdom, on whose shoulders so much depends, who have come onto the stage of action in mortality at a very crucial time. I should like to be very brief and very blunt, brothers and sisters, in our time. We are in an age that is surfeited with causes, and I read from the Book of Mormon a verse that for me says it all when it says, Jesus advocateth the cause of the children of men. And in the midst of misunderstanding and difficulty, it is so crucial for us to keep our perspective in terms of the message we bear and what we have to share with mankind and how relevant that message really is. It would seem to me, brothers and sisters, for instance, that one of the things the gospel of Jesus Christ does is to tell us that our brotherhood with men on this planet is not a mere biological brotherhood, but is the kind of brotherhood which lets me know that I have an accountability for my relationships with other people far beyond today, far beyond here, and far beyond now. I have a friend in Washington, D.C., a good member of the Church, who recently came home, found his house being burglarized, uh, ended up tussling with the burglar. Very tragic situation. The burglar shot him, severed his spinal cord. He is now paralyzed from the waist down. As I visited with him in a hospital in Washington, D.C. recently, Ralph told me sobbingly and with a sense of gratitude how he had now, as a matter of prayer and great reflection, been able to forgive this man, his assailant, for the great tragedy that he's inflicted upon Ralph. I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, we can't forgive each other if our brotherhood is simply a biological brotherhood in which we share the same planet. That the only kind of forgiveness that can operate in the human family is born of a sense of brotherhood which the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us is pervasive and persistent. I also believe our message is relevant in an age, as harm indicates, when people uh, deny the existence of a God, that the gospel of Jesus Christ not only tells us that he exists, but that our God, as we understand him through the revelations, is a loving and wise Father, and loving us will, if necessary, insist that we deal with harsh realities in terms of our personal growth. Too many Christians believe in God as a kindly grandfather who indulges us, who is happy when we uh, take happiness in sin. The God of the gospel is a loving father who, in loving us, is willing for us to endure pain if that is necessary for us to grow. He is not a mere life force. He is not a kindly grandfather but is the kind of father who's committed to our growth and loves us enough to trust us to each other, knowing the harsh consequences of that decision. And third for me, the message we bear, brothers and sisters, is one in which there is a spiritual ecology. We hear a lot today about ecology in the world of biological and physical things. We're learning that its laws are inexorable, that when we violate them, we pay a penalty and we pay a price. I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that there is an ecology and, an, and a world of law that pertain to spiritual things which, when we violate them, has a series of consequences just as inexorable and just as automatic as the ecology that's born of the world of law and nature. 
that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a collection of principles weaved together in the fabric of immutable law, that this is the romance and the high adventure of orthodoxy, that these principles bound together not only give us salvation, but they give us balance and dimension and happiness in our lives, and that the gospel of Jesus Christ is so powerful and its doctrine so powerful, and any one of these doctrines, having been broken away from the rest, goes wild and goes mad. The principle of love without the principle of justice and discipline goes wild. Any doctrine, unless it is weaved together in the fabric of orthodoxy, goes wild. And this, for me, is the romance and high adventure of orthodoxy in our time, that the doctrines of the kingdom need each other just as the people of the kingdom need each other. And that this ecological law that we speak about so glibly today operates in these kinds of ways. I see, for instance, a connection between the kind of heedless destruction that occurs with strip mining in states like West Virginia, where the get-and-gouge theory prevailed. Now we have a kind of vast wasteland that is scarred, and the floods come, and the anguish occurs. There is a spiritual counterpart to that strip mining, and that is the violation of the law of chastity, that this brings floods of anguish, that this brings harsh consequences inevitably and inexorably, just as surely as the violation of those principles of conservation in West Virginia. And this means, brothers and sisters, as the Book of Mormon indicates, there are transcendental implications with the doctrine of chastity, for as Jacob writes, in a time of gross unchastity, many hearts died and were pierced with deep wounds. We don't understand all of these laws that operate in the world of spiritual ecology, but they are there. We find, brothers and sisters, I think other counterparts. We worry about pollution, and rightfully so. But a home in which there is not love pollutes society just as surely as we pollute the airs and streams around us and people further down pay a price. If we were to quantify a reference to modern scriptures, we would say, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we would have to say, McKay 1 and 1, there is no other success that can compensate for failure in the home, is a spiritual law of the first magnitude. And when we sing that homely song, Love at Home, as trite as it may seem to us, we happen to be verbalizing words that deal with the most sublime concept in the gospel. And when there is not love at home, when there is scarring and deprivation emotionally, society pays a price just as inexorably as society pays a price for the other forms of pollution. We paid, to be perfectly blunt, a presidential price for the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald did not have love in his marriage or in his home. The family in Kansas paid a total price when they were killed in cold blood, as Capote records, partly because one of the young murderers had seen his mother in a situation of unchastity and was so indelibly scarred that that hostility gets acted out on all of society. When there is not love at home, we are then punished by passivity or hostility, brothers and sisters, and society pays a price just as we pay it when we pollute the world in which we live in other ways. We talk, and the young are rightly concerned, about violence in terms of war. What the gospel does, if one understands its ecology, brothers and sisters, is help us to balance considerations. The violence of war is tragic. So is the violence of alcoholism. 
We've killed 40,000 Americans in Vietnam in nine years. During those same nine years, 250,000 Americans lost their lives in highway accidents that were related to alcohol. If we're against violence, then alcohol is obscene in terms of its harsh consequences for the human family. That, too, is a law. My sister teaches in a school district where she occasionally has children who come from homes in which there is alcoholism. Last year had two or three children who were beaten pretty regularly by their parents, came to class, puffed up, abused. I'm not sure there's enough love in the world, brothers and sisters, to save those kids. These kinds of concerns are part of the gospel, and when we say that Jesus advocateth the cause of the children of men, we should mean that whatever it is in the gospel that he tells us to do is productive of happiness here as well as salvation in the world to come. We are rightly concerned with reforming and improving our institutions in society. The gospel says we begin at home, in the American home. If we fail there, it doesn't matter much about the form and content of our other societal institutions. In the spiritual ecology, we have in New York City a million people on welfare. It's out of control. Now, we know from the gospel that when we use a dole system, it doesn't work. I admire those outside the Church who frantically search for remedies to the major, massive social problems of our time. I admire their heroism and their sincerity. The gospel tells us what must be done in these cases, and if we fail to recognize these kinds of laws, we will pay a price as a society. In addition, brothers and sisters, the gospel rightfully reminds us in terms of the ecology of the things of the Spirit that when, in fact, we adopt a philosophy of life which partakes of the eat, drink, and be merry style, we are then doing the same basic things as those who exploited those West Virginia hills so heedlessly and left the consequences for others to deal with. We're not going to solve the problem of age-dependent children in America, which costs us billions of dollars, until fathers are placed at the head of the home and stay there, leading in love and kindness. We're not going to solve the problem of the thousands of young men and women in Japan who are just your age now, who were sired by unchaste American servicemen and abandoned. I read a study about them recently, and they have a great sense of inner rage and deprivation and bitterness and cynicism. We pay a terrible price when we violate these spiritual laws. May I suggest to you further, brothers and sisters, that what the gospel gives us that is so precious in terms of perspective is also the avoidance of fads, the fads that come and go and sweep across our society, even the Church at times. But the gospel could give us a sense of balance and a sense of proportion about the things that matter most, as Jesus said, in terms of our individual lifestyle. And that means that we avoid the problem C.S. Lewis rightfully describes, that so often in society, when we're in the midst of a crisis, we run around with fire extinguishers in times of flood, that we are put on guard against the very things that we least need to be put on guard against. I suppose in the Middle Ages, Christians then didn't need hope of a resurrection. They all believed in it. They needed other kinds of dimensions of the gospel that were emphasized. In our time, the need for hope, the belief in immortality, and the fundamental belief in God is a very pervasive kind of thing. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is prepared to address that need in our society and in the world today. And you're the seed bearers of that kind of message.
the seed bearers of the culture of the kingdom. And on your shoulders these kinds of burdens rest, and I think rest on shoulders able to bear them. May I suggest to you two things in closing, brothers and sisters. I would like to see your generation continue to be, within the Church, idealists without illusions, prepared to cope with the world as it is and to bring the message of the Master to bear on its problems with the confidence within you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to human problems. To be able to say it not condescendingly or with false pride, but humbly and with a sense of certitude born of your own experience because you are aware of how relevant the gospel is in terms of our major social problems. We can produce enough food for mankind. We can't produce the delivery systems in terms of political and social systems because we don't really believe in brotherhood. We can produce documents that talk about our concern for others. That's pretty hard to really mean unless you believe, in fact, as we do, that we are begotten sons and daughters of a common Father in heaven. Every social and political problem of any significance that I know about can be solved and solved only by the applications of the teachings of the Master. That's trite almost to say, and yet experientially in my life this is borne in on me with a truthfulness that has never been as impactful as before. I believe, brothers and sisters, that one of the things the Church does for each of us, and any institution, though it's perfect in terms of its doctrine and its divine leadership, filled with people like you and me, is going to uh, be imperfect some of its uh, dimensions. But what the Church does is to avoid this kind of problem. C.S. Lewis says, The more often a man feels without acting, the less he will ever be able to act, and in the long run, the less he will ever be able to feel. I'm grateful that the Church helps me to feel, prods me to act, and keeps me feeling and acting in life in a way that I would not do if the kingdom did not lean on me and create opportunities for me to participate. That's part of the message, too, that, in fact, the gospel moves us to action through the institution of the Church in a concerted and effective way that, left to ourselves, many of us simply would not undertake. And lastly, brothers and sisters, for me... My testimony came in three ways. Early in life, the witness of the Spirit. Then the intellectual conversion, subsequently. Then the experiential conversion, the three things flowing together in such a way that they resonate together in terms of the validity of the message of the Master. The witness of the Spirit being more sure, and the others corroborating increasingly the relevancy of the gospel in its message for our time, so that I can say to you humbly and sincerely and soberly, when the Book of Mormon says, Jesus advocateth the cause of the children of men, that indeed he does, and that every dimension of the gospel is relevant to one or more of our social and political problems in our time. It is your generation more than any preceding generation that must make this application, that must articulate the message to be articulate Mormons in terms of a doubting and skeptical world, in a lonely world filled with fear and difficulty and turbulence. You can't do this without the inner peace the gospel brings. I salute you as a generation that matters. You are much like the Spartans of ancient Greece 
who were gathered uh, along with all the other tribes of Greece into a great amphitheater. An old bent man came into the theater looking for a place to sit down. There was no seat left. No one rose to offer him a seat as he moved from tribe to tribe until he came to the Spartans. And they rose as one, offering him a place to sit down. And the old man in a quiet voice said, All Greeks know what is right, but only the Spartans do it. Most Americans know what is right. Be the young Latter-day Saints who do it and who lead the way. You have my confidence and my witness as to the truthfulness of the work in which we are engaged and that it will prove increasingly relevant to every social problem you see in the headlines of today. May God bless you to that end, I pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.